0: Good evening to you all. The pumpkins are gone but their fragrance remains ever so slightly. So what do you think? (laughs) You don't think, I know. What do you think? Are you trying hard enough? So I want to check. So I'm going to give you a talk on effort. And we'll start with um, a review of the classic teachings on effort that the Buddha offers in the Eightfold Path. So some of you may know that wise effort is part of the concentration set of steps in the Eightfold Path. So there's wise effort and then there's wise mindfulness and wise concentration. So this concentration set is one of the subgroupings of the Eightfold Path. And if you remember that it's wisdom that actually sets us free from the delusion that causes suffering, you can see how these three things work together. So, we know from our own experience that it takes effort to establish mindfulness. And it's mindfulness, sustained mindfulness, that actually leads in the direction of wise concentration. So, in order for mindfulness to be there and then for concentration to open, there needs to be wise effort. So, considered in the context of the Eightfold Path, a particular kind of wholesome energy is actually called forth. And that's the exertion to bring the existing capacities of mind, our existing wholesome states of consciousness, and direct them towards increasing the amount of wisdom, and the amount of space, the amount of liberation in our minds. So fortunately for us, there are already wholesome states, there is already some wisdom present, or we'd never be able to practice. So the role of the teachers in a certain kind of way, you could say is to, to call on you to deploy this wisdom, this wholesomeness that's already part of your experience and engage it and direct it in certain kinds of ways. And those ways that uh, we ask you to direct it are contained in the meditation instructions and in other pointings that we offer you in the course of um, morning instructions and in the practice meetings. So we're encouraging you to incline the mind towards a certain kind of effort along a certain line of tasks. And I'm going to talk about what the Buddha says those tasks are overall, and then I'm going to talk about some of the things that we tend to bring to practice or add to practice that can create some complexification for ourselves if we don't recognize that. So first of all, the Buddha says there are four great endeavors endeavors. It's kind of an old-fashioned word, isn't it, endeavor? You know, like makes it sound like, uh, I don't know, Shackleton's expedition or something like that. But I guess in uh, a certain kind of way, it is an inner voyage that calls for the same kind of uh, undaunted persistence that Shackleton showed. But anyway... So the first of these four great endeavors is to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. To prevent the arising, okay, meaning they don't happen, of unarisen, unwholesome states. Meaning they aren't there yet, but you want to keep it that way. So if we're going to offer a slogan that describes that, we'd say, Don't get yourself in trouble. Don't get yourself in trouble. And by unwholesome states, the Buddha is talking about the defilements of mind, greed, hatred, and and delusion, and states that flow from them, the many variations. So uh, all of these, of course, are states of suffering. So if we're going to look at how to actually do this, how to not get yourself in trouble, there are a number of different... uh, supports for it. One is the practice of sila, the practice of ethical conduct. A second is um, sense restraint, guarding the senses. In other words, not just letting the mind wander around without the uh, accompaniment of mindfulness. You know how it does get in trouble when it wanders. And then the third of these would be maintaining strong and continuous mindfulness. So if you can maintain strong and continuous mindfulness, that's actually uh, would be a state of great concentration, then the hindrances aren't going to be able to arise. But, you know, good luck with that, right? Maintaining strong and continuous mindfulness so that none of the... <laughs> the hindrances arise. It's kind of a tall order. So, then there's the second great endeavor, which is to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen, meaning uh, they're there, and now there's the, the uh, task of figuring out what to do with them so they don't proliferate. So, look at the wording here, to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen, which is a very different thing than, than, for instance, moving into them with identification, or being lost in them, or operating from them. Right? So, this is the territory of hindrances here. Sometimes I call this the one and a half arrow territory. So, there's enough mindfulness to recognize that there's a hindrance there, but the mindfulness uh, isn't strong enough to completely uh, suppress it or let go of it on demand. Or so now is the time to pra- practice with it. So you could say the slogan here is, do not cling or relate unskillfully to suffering when it arises. Okay, it's there, it's happening, now what to do. And Dara gave a a whole talk on the hindrances, which is a necessary thing. And we could probably actually do a whole week of talks on the hindrances where we go into each individual one and talk about the conditions that bring it about and then take a look at the the conditions or um, the ways the mind can individually relate to it, to, uh, to address the arisen hindrance and to reduce the propensity for its re-arising. But the main thing is that these are states that obscure the mind and weaken awareness, and so it, it makes it more difficult to clearly and mindfully know and see what's happening moment to moment. In other words, they, they put a damper, on our capacity to sustain mindfulness. And in losing mindfulness, you can, as you know, we lose the basis for the establishment of wise concentration. And since it's wise concentration that helps to temporarily suppress the hindrances, that's a strategically weak situation. But nevertheless, there we are, we've got some mindfulness, mindfulness enough to recognize them, we, we recognize, okay, now I've got to, got to figure out a skillful way to relate to this thing that's here. And from the perspective of uh, liberation, task number one is always to strengthen mindfulness or restore mindfulness if it's nearly collapsed. Because when clear seeing and mindfulness is re-established and maintained, then concentration will arise. And that supports our knowing of reality, because awareness will be more continuous and the, the jig uh, saw puzzle of our understanding will gradually fill in. So to take a quick look at the hindrances uh, per Dara's talk. Well, the Buddha agrees with Dara on these two. (laughs) The first is sense desires, sense craving. But remember here, one of the senses, there are six sense doors and one of them is the mind. So don't get the idea that the craving can just be in relation to seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. Because if you've watched your mind carefully, you probably realize by now, wow, a lot of the craving is really mental. So there's that, sense, desire, then there's ill will, or aversion. The uh, two main uh, forks in that one are fear, anxiety, etc., and Anger, hostility, (laughs) hatred, uh, you know, the yin and the yang of (laughs) aversion, if you want to put it that way. Then there is dullness and drowsiness, sometimes called sloth and, and torpor, and restlessness and worry and doubt. And wise attention is what's really called for, in order to undercut the presence of these things. So the Buddha says, When one learns to wisely attend to experience comes into skillful relationship to experience. One is on the path to liberation. So the primary task is always to strengthen or restore mindfulness. And then there's a number of techniques to work with these states. You know, you can let it just move through if it's like a clipper system of uh fast moving delusion Um, you can uh, attempt to let it go actively let it go sometimes that that can work sometimes uh, it might be skillful to redirect attention to something else where you can sustain mindfulness that's a potential technique You can investigate the hindrance, investigate the hindrance. So we we haven't said too much yet about investigation, the second of the seven factors of awakening. But it's an important one. This idea that you can actually use mindfulness when it's present to take a look in real time at the specifics of what you're knowing to actually get closer into, um, better aligned with, more clearly perceiving what the immediate experience is by being interested in the particular characteristics it's displaying, or which are visible in real time. So you can investigate the hindrance, strengthening mindfulness in, in the process. Or you can employ particular remedies, like bringing up energy if there's sloth and torpor or, um, you know, uh, turning to something of a sensory nature if the mind is being plagued by doubt, moving away from um, the circling questions which are its hallmark. So each of these hindrances has different techniques that can be applied. And probably in your practice meetings you've gotten some tips in relationship to these kinds of states. But the main thing is when you connect skillfully with unwholesome states they weaken and they decrease. And this is part of the power of mindfulness. That gradually we change the ecology of our minds and make the the inner soil less fertile for the seeds of diluted states to arise. And at the same time, we cultivate what supports our well-being, wholesome states, and enter into a virtuous spiral. Just by the application, the sustained uh, arousal and application of mindfulness to the stream of uh, immediately present experiences. So that's a pretty amazing thing that's got the correct pH to both weaken what is unskillful and suffering and to support the growth and proliferation of what's wholesome and onward leading. And you can see why sati or mindfulness is so key in this whole system. Then you've got the third of the four great endeavors to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen. So a slogan for that would be wise attention makes wholesome seeds sprout. And this process really begins with initial meditation instructions that are uh, designed and intended to establish and direct your application of mindfulness. So with the establishment of mindfulness, the door opens for the other six factors of awakening to arise in the mind stream. And these factors prepare the way for awakening, for our growth in wisdom and understanding, which is liberative in nature, because it starts to see directly for itself how reality works and what ways of relating to reality are functional and which ways of relating to reality are dysfunctional and suffering. So, for those uh, who may uh, wonder, well, what are these seven factors of awakening, alluded to, it starts with mindfulness, Sati, that's the lead horse and the one factor of mind you can never have too much of. Then there's investigation that I talked about a bit earlier. Then there's energy or effort, virya is the Pali word. Then there's uh, rapt interest or meditative joy. Then there's uh, tranquility, or peace. Um, Then concentration, also called samadhi. And then equanimity, upekka. So those are the seven. And one supports the arising of the follow-on one. So it's not a completely linear process, but um, each one of these creates conditions that supports the arising of the subsequent ones. So then four is to maintain and perfect wholesome states already arisen. So we could say the slogan would be wise attention enriches the soil. So, one thing that's really useful with this is to actually recognize wholesome states when they're there. So, we're very problem-oriented, right? I mean, we know what we don't like and what we would like to get rid of and what we think is messing up the practice or where we're suffering. But we're not nearly as alert to, or even interested in, what isn't a problem. So it could be a very interesting endeavor, for instance, to spend a day inclining the mind to notice and note wholesome states of mind that are present. Because they're encouraged by our recognition of them. You could start with mindfulness itself, which is always present with any wholesome state. There's mindfulness. There's the other uh, six of the seven factors of awakening I just mentioned. There's metta and compassion and mudita and equanimity. There's lots of wholesome things. There's all the paramis, the paramitas of mind. So that's a something that you could do. Break up the dukkha a little bit. So that's what the Buddha has to say about wise effort. His particulars about it. And he talked about effort a lot. It makes total sense because if you consider the practice of awakening the mind as an uphill against the stream kind of journey You can see it takes effort, it takes a kind of resolve, it takes patience, it takes persistence. Finding the skill in how to make effort is the art of meditation. Figuring out how to apply the wholesome energies of mind to the situation at hand. That's the art piece. And that's what you're doing here with your adventure in uh, immersive learning. Now, let's talk about other kinds of efforts that are often made in meditation practice. And I find this just a really interesting area. Really interesting. So in addition to what the Buddha says are the four endeavors, there are the personal agendas and motivations our own idiosyncratic addition to the four endeavors. And this makes all kinds of sense because when we practice, our mind streams are always mixed, right? They're a mix of wholesome things and unwholesome things and... um, We may have an idea about where the spiritual path is going, but in some ways it might seem sort of vague and out of reach, or unrealistic, or not fully formed or shaped in our our mind and understanding. And how could it be? I mean, how can you know what it's like if you haven't traveled the territory? So that piece may sort of be vague and a little out of focus. But, very often, We undertake the journey and walk the path with a lot of different intentions in play. And so we may have personal, very specific motivations that make sense to us here and now and that we would really like to accomplish. So we might have a very particular picture of uh, where we want to go and what we want to accomplish in our time here. And we want to use the retreat to get there. Does that sound familiar? Okay, I'm Here's some examples of this. This is what I have called as examples of motivations and agendas we often carry with us either for the retreat or for a sitting. So you may ask how do I know these? Well, I can watch my own mind, you know. That's <laughs> part of it. But I've seen a few minds now, so, okay. One is, a thing we might come in with is to get rid of a particular emotion or emotional pattern. In other words, to get fixed. And I don't mean like the spade and neuter clinic. (laughs) More psychological, emotional fixing, right? Now, It's totally reasonable and even self-compassion to want to be able to not suffer emotionally or want to address a psychological knot that is present in our life and frequently occurring. Totally wise, skillful, reasonable, all the rest of it. And yet, are we trying to do that in real time in addition to following the meditation instructions? Or are we trying to take the meditation instructions and figure out how we can use them to accomplish this goal in real time? So that's the question. And I'll talk a little bit later about you know why that's... Uh, tricky and probably not going to be too successful okay so related to that is the desire to make ourselves different you know or into a preferred version uh, in some essential manner you know to get improved or perfected okay again improvement is possible right improvement is possible for all of us Uh, another common one is to figure out something about myself, my life, or a relationship. You know, you come in on retreat and it's like, I want to figure out my relationship with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got three months, six weeks to... I like come up with the the formula to make mom a different person. <laughs> uh, okay, so another one would be to attain a particular kind of spiritual experience we've heard or read about. You know, I ha- I have this friend and, you know, he went on retreat and he told me he had this experience of light rays shooting from his head. And <laughs> it was like all the, all the colors of the rainbow. And, you know, in the, all, in the rays, there was just this feeling of unity of all the beings on the globe. And, you know, like this huge heart opening and, okay. Um, there's the one, to prove something to ourselves or someone else. Yeah. I came ac- ac- across a little bit of this motivation the first time I went to a ten-day retreat, and um, I, yeah, you know, I misread the materials. They talked about there being a ten-day retreat at Brighton Bush Hot Springs in Oregon, and it was. Um, there was going to be an hour walking meditation, an hour sitting meditation, and it was going to be held in this place in the mountains, uh, on a river with old growth forest and gourmet vegetarian meals. And I thought, oh... And it was cheap. I thought, oh, let me get me some of that. That sounds perfect. And then when I got there, I realized that it was an hour walking and it was an hour sitting, but it started at 5 o'clock in the morning and (laughs) went till 10 at night. (laughs) Which wasn't really what I had in mind. But I think if I hadn't told my friends that I was going to be gone for 10 days and do this thing, I I might have left. I might have left. So I guess I was showing endurance. Mixed motives. Then there's um, to experience pleasantness, bliss, or concentration, or and, you know, maybe a psychic experience. Because, you know, you hear these stories about these states that can arise, and how lovely and beautiful they are, and then all these powers of mind that can develop, and that'd be kind of cool to have, right? It'd be like the X-Men or something. (laughs) (laughs) Mutating for the benefit of beings. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's, you know, to impress the teachers or get recognized as special. Um, to have my ego or uh, self-sense or personality disappear. That's actually a pretty common one. You know, because you hear these teachings of uh, no-self or not-self or selflessness. Ah, maybe I can root out my ego or my self-sense. Sometimes there's a motivation to uh, experience, again, something from a previous retreat or sitting, Mm -hmm. right? Like recreate that experience that you had the last retreat you were on or that one that you had in 1989. Or sometimes the agenda is to not experience something from a, a previous retreat or sitting, right? Whatever happens, don't let that one come back again. And it'll all be, be okay as long as I don't have that period of, you know, dragging along the bottom for a week that I had that time that I did the six weeks. As long as that doesn't happen. And then, you know, the, the desire to be a, a good yogi, you know. A good yoga I want to create an identity around being a, a meditator or you know the kind of person that would go on a three-month silent retreat you know a great yogi would be better but you know there's a, a, a little bit of a uh, what's the word cachet now around uh, uh, meditation when I started doing this they just thought you were crazy if you went on a three-month retreat. I can remember once telling a a co-worker, you know, why I was leaving a job, and I said, well, you know, I'm going on this retreat and it's going to be three months long, and she asked a few things about it, and I said, well, you know, no, I can't, you know, really write or anything, because it's silent, you know. And she she looked at me and she said, well, if you think it'll help... (laughs) I think it's considered to be a little more performance enhancing now, you know, and now in our capitalist culture that makes all the difference, right? So, maybe that's what you achieved. <laughs> okay. So, let's let's take a look at what happens if we attempt to use the practice for such things. So, if we don't identify and acknowledge these particular personal additions to the four efforts, the Buddha talks about that. Or if we attempt to practice in a way to directly advance these goals, this is what tends to happen. So, we're looking for a particular result related to this personal goal. Right? We've got the personal goal. We want to see some results. So, then we try to control what arises and what doesn't arise as we uh, feel it helps or doesn't help our agenda, right? Oh, I want to figure out my relationship to my mom and make it better. You're sitting in, in a meta-meditation and you're, you're trying to use your mom as your benefactor and, you know, all this rage is arising. <laughs> uh. So then we don't bring a fresh mind to the instructions, we're kind of um, uh, applying the instructions with a particular end in mind, or disregarding the instructions completely, or sort of trying to follow them with our other goal, hanging out there as part of the context. And there's a real tendency to grade ourselves then, you know, is what we want to happen happening? How is our, our project going? How's the side project going? And it might not even be a side project, it might be more like the central project that we're just using the whole meditation thing to try to fix or address. So the ego tends to inflate and deflate based on our sense of success, right? Because we're in a... we're in a, situation of fixed view about what acceptable outcome is. And we're generally out of connection with the predominant experience which is actually occurring. So this is the door to all kinds of struggle and fatigue and hindrances. When we fail to control we get mad or sad. And then there's the self-judgment piece, and uh, doubt and fatigue, and lots and lots of hindrances. So there are a number of problems if we don't see these personal agendas, but invest in them and proceed from them as a starting point and a standard for measuring how we're doing. And this is a really human thing, right? We want to know how we're doing. And in this environment where everybody's in silence, that tendency of mind to compare ourselves to others, to compare ourselves to somebody else's real or imaginary experience—it's pretty imaginary the comparisons that are made uh, to what's happening for others on retreat. It's—it's it's there. It's part of the field, right? But The mind that can drop comparison of real-time experience to anything is a wise mind. (laughs) Because, what's the Latin term? Sui generis, the, the thing in and of itself, just how it is. It's the thing itself that we're tracking with this practice. But if we're taking these kinds of agendas and goals, and are real invested in proceeding from them as a standard for how we're doing, we're really trying to squeeze our spiritual practice into a context that's much too small, much too closed-ended, and much too particularly goal-oriented. So we're starting from the wrong base and bringing a kind of overlay to the whole situation. So instead of proceeding in a really simple way, we're keeping our usual approach going at the same time we're unquote simply trying to be aware. Well, we're simply trying to be aware in a way that can make something happen that's other than simply being aware. So it's way too complex and there's a kind of split focus thing that happens then, where we aren't really open to what is happening, we're too busy trying to make something specific happening or happen or not happen. And, of course, a significant flaw is, it doesn't work. (laughs) Since we don't actually have the ability to implement our preferences and make what we want to happen in practice, we generally fail. Now, that's kind of a major defect, right? So, goal rigidity causes suffering because it resists what's actually happening, which is a way of saying it resists the truth. And our job on a retreat, if we wish not to suffer, is to harmonize with the truth and not to argue with it. So, as we see if we attend, things arise and pass away according to their nature and not our wishes. So the slogan uh, for those who choose another way of proceeding is uh, I fought the law and the law won. But let's get back to what to do with this tangle. this, This dilemma that can be present there in practice. And, of course, these personal goals do exist for many people on retreat. And a lot of them have wholesomeness in them and and some wisdom too. But it's just that this process is not designed to align with effort made along these lines, which is primary in its nature. But is there a way to practice that acknowledges these but doesn't get entangled in them? And I think the answer to that is yes, that there is a kind of uh, integrity, integrity of effort that can be called forth and deployed that will get the maximum overall benefit. And this would be a kind of effort that's integrated and congruent with the overall goals and methods of the teachings offered here. In other words, it, it would fall in line with what the Buddha says are the four great endeavors, and with all the other teachings that are being offered here, that are designed to move the mind from delusion to liberation and freedom from suffering. But in order to do that, there's a kind of sincerity and commitment and resolve and renunciation involved. So if I was going to answer the question, what kind of resolve are you talking about? I'd say it's to regard these other goals that we bring into the retreat with wise attention. In other words, are you you willing to put them uh, into the practice within the framework of wise intention. So this would be process focused and not outcome insistent. So let's look at some of the, the, uh, integrated or integral ways we could practice or, uh, work with these kinds of goals. So you could recognize them and let them go. The simplest thing would be to drop them completely and set them to the side and let them go at least for now. But if this seems out of the question for now, then there might be some craving there to notice. Right? If the mind goes, no way, no way, no way, no way I came here for three months and not fix myself. (laughs) You want to notice that. But that is a potential, to incline the mind to let them go. Another thing that could be done though, would be to reframe the goals to be aligned and non-interfering. In other words, to revise them to actually be skillful and congruent with these. So, if we can reframe the motivations and the, and the desires so that they become more skillful, they can actually be stepping stones and supports to the practice instead of obstacles. So this is a revision to be skillful and not conflictual. So let me go through, back through my list of what I, what I have seen people coming in with and give potential revisions, rewrites, re-edits. Okay, the one about getting rid of a particular emotion or emotional pattern, getting fixed, could be rewritten as to learn to meet difficult emotions with compassion, wisdom and courage. To meet it with compassion, wisdom and courage. Which as we said in the earlier discussion of the properties of mindfulness, has the effect, over time, of weakening unwholesome states. Uh, The second one was to make ourselves different, uh, into a different preferred version in some essential manner to get improved or fixed, uh, or perfected. If that was revised, it could be to open to my full potential by developing new strengths. To figure out something about myself, my life, or a relationship. Well, how about increased clarity, wisdom, and compassion? To attain a particular spiritual experience might be to recognize new growth and insight without attachment. To prove something to ourselves or someone else could be to develop confidence and faith in myself and the path. To experience pleasantness, bliss or concentration. To recognize pleasantness, bliss and concentration when they arise without attachment. To impress the teachers get recognized as special. To develop my potential in order to serve others. To have my ego, self sense and or personality disappear. To recognize my true nature. To experience again something from a previous retreat or sitting. To let go of all expectations, seeing the unique truth of each moment. So, you know, looking for the kernel of wisdom in these things and figuring out how to reframe them to be aligned and non-interfering. Another way to practice with these is to summon renunciation. And the way you would do this is to include them in practice when they arise just like other things, not giving them a special privilege status. In other words, are you willing to take your cherished goal and when it arises in the mind to notice it as, for instance, wanting Making these things conscious, and when they arise, bring mindfulness to them the same way you would to the breath or a sound. You know, seeing them as a desire. Noticing any attachment to them or any desire to do them at that moment. So a skillful relationship with these would be noticing when they've become goals, and aren't being treated as objects of awareness. In other words, notice when the special thing is there. I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. Because when I go home and my friends who are meditators ask me about you know whether I got concentration, I want to be able to tell them that I got concentration and I got to be able to do it, I got to be able to do it. So noticing when they're out of Uh, and not in the meditative process, to notice when they arise as an anomaly that is now directing this application of mindfulness to other things. But, the thing itself, the secondary or primary agenda is actually not being known very clearly as the real-time experience that it is. And then you would... uh, apply the same old regular practice instructions to them to deconstruct them. So seeing arising personal goals as meditation objects and then using this st- some of the standard investigative techniques like recognizing thoughts, emotions, vedana, body sensations with which arise moment to moment when they're they're present. So th- so there's uh, an interesting uh, investigation that you can make if the thought of the special thing being treated like any other arising leads you to go, no, not that one, I really want it, dot, 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 dot. Then you want to note attachment. Because what does the mind do when it hears that? Well, you know, but I, yeah, I get that, I get that, I get that. But no, I really gotta, I really gotta, I really gotta fix this thing, or I really gotta figure out this thing, or I really need to get this thing, or I need, yeah, 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 yeah. But I really gotta, you don't understand, I really gotta. (laughs) That's all well and good, that mindfulness stuff. But I'm really here to figure out my relationship with my mother. Okay. So I would suggest that the process of inclining the mind to uh, settling and calming um, might lend some some clarity and some balance of mind to this very situation. Because if thinking about it can fix it, it'd be fixed. Okay, so the final possibility for you is to continue to run your own experiment with this dual focus and then to observe closely what happens when you attempt to meditate from these perspectives. Just to notice when when the dual thing is happening and see how it goes, you know, like what's happening in terms of the hindrances, what's happening in terms of um, your peace of mind, what's happening in terms of the strength of mindfulness available to you. You know, is it is, is the mind getting tight? Is turmoil increasing? Is desperation increasing? Because it's a, it is kind of an interesting thing, you must admit that we can create desperation with our thoughts while we're sitting in an environment where there's really nothing on a pragmatic level that we can do about anything that we're thinking about. The mind gets tight, gets contracted. I gotta know, I gotta know, I gotta figure it out, I gotta make it happen, I I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta. Well, thoughts. Their thoughts, but that that would be you know the great experiment to, you know to to kind of go that way and see what happens, or you can you can make the experiment of putting the of uh, seeing what you can do to reframe it to make everything m- more skillful and aligned, and when these. Uh, these human inclinations arise in the mind um, to put them into the Dharma chipper and to see <laughs> what they are. You know, put them into the practice and see what they are. Okay. So we all want to be happy, you know? We're just not sure how to go about it. It's very confusing to be human. So there's a, a big compassion piece there too, you know? Because when you think about it, I mean, we make tremendous effort. We make tremendous amount of effort all the time. This that The way we make effort uh, both the type of effort and the line of effort very often is not too productive. But you gotta say, you know, we human beings, we are triers. <laughs> you know, we are really triers. So, can there be some compassion for that? And uh, an openness uh, to experimenting with what the Buddha says is a wise type of effort, no wise line of effort, and just see what happens with that one. So you're here for a good chunk of time to run your own experiment and that after all is what this is. So may we find the path to peace and wisdom through our own self-effort. Letting go of all obscurations of mind which incline us to settle for less than complete freedom. May our practice be for our own benefit and for the benefit of all beings.